Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, November 15th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. Democrats slamming the president for tweeting out attacks against former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, as her testimony began this morning on Capitol Hill. That top diplomat calling the messaging, quote, very intimidating. Trump associate and former advisor Roger Stone found guilty on all counts, convicted of witness tampering, lying to Congress and obstruction. We'll have the details. The search for answers now underway after two students were killed at Saugus High School in Santa Clarita, California. The gunman now listed in grave condition. That school now joining a growing list of sites shattered by gun violence. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. We begin with major news. This morning, a jury finding former Trump advisor Roger Stone guilty of witness tampering, lying to members of Congress and obstruction. Stone was accused of getting in the way of the congressional investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election, lying to the House Intelligence Committee in 2017 about Trump's campaign's contact with WikiLeaks. Stone had denied the allegations and called the case politically motivated. Stone could face up to 20 years in prison when he's sentenced in February. Another high-stakes day on Capitol Hill this morning. Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine, who was ousted by President Trump, is testifying in public for the first time. Janet Rodriguez is live from Washington, D.C. Janet? Well, Lorraine, the headline doesn't come from Capitol Hill itself, but from the White House, because earlier this morning, as uh, they were, uh, the, the testimony started, the president tweeted and he said, everywhere Marie Jovanovich went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Then fast forward to Ukraine, where the, where the new Ukrainian president spoke unfavorably about her in my second phone call with him. It is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors, and this has has become the point of uh, conversation in the Hill. Now many Democrats saying that this is intimidation of a witness and of course uh, leadership right away as Jovanovich as she was speaking what she thought about this tweet and this is what she had to say. And now the president in real time is attacking you. What effect do you think that has on other witnesses willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. It's designed to intimidate, is it not? I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. And the Democrats are now saying that uh, this possible witness intimidation could become yet another charge against the president in a possible um, trial of impeachment. Now, let's go back to that testimony of Jovanovich because she has said in throughout the morning that she has no idea at this point why it was that she was uh, uh, fired, basically, and why it was that the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to attack her personally, to attack her character, and uh, to go around talking bad about her. She has no understanding of what his motivation was, but she does understand that 
uh, any uh, shadow foreign policies. It's not good for either country, basically, for the relationship and trying to fight corruption over in Ukraine. So Jovanovic is saying this morning that she feels intimidated, that she feels threatened, and she is one of two witnesses today. The second witness is testifying behind doors, closed doors. This is another um, State Department official who overheard the president in that now um, controversial phone call, another phone call altogether, saying that he was pressing for that investigation to the Biden. So we have to wait and see what comes out of that second testimony happening today in Congress. Back to you. Thank you, Janet Rodriguez, for that report from Washington, D.C. And for more on the impeachment hearings, let's go to Max Bergman. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Thanks for joining us, Max. Thanks for having me. What has stood out to you about Marie Yovanovitch's public testimony so far? Well, I think, I think the thing that has stood out the most is that there's a clear victim in this crime and that she's the victim, that she was railroaded out of uh, her position as ambassador uh, to Ukraine. Uh, as the Republican line of questioning has now demonstrated, there was a concerted campaign against her. And so she uh, uh, withstood months of personal attacks uh, coming from the White House, coming from the president's family, such as Donald Trump Jr. tweeting out that she should be removed. And what's now revealed is the reason why they wanted her removed was because she was standing up to corruption, standing up to corruption within Ukraine, and that Trump himself and Rudy Giuliani had teamed up and partnered with this corrupt prosecutor general of Ukraine that wanted her gone. So she puts, she uh, exposes the lie that this was that the president was trying to fight corruption, and I think that's one of the major takeaways of this testimony. What has been the Republican strategy so far? Because today at some point, Adam Schiff was, you know, not letting them talk. And there was a little bit of a back and forth towards the beginning of the hearing. So I think their strategy is very similar to what we saw on Wednesday. It's to not actually talk about the facts uh, that are being presented, but to try to distract the conversation by throwing out sort of bizarre conspiracy theories re resulting revolving around a, a notion that Ukraine, Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in 2016, things that have very little factual basis but serve to sort of confuse the issue. They want to talk a lot about Hunter Biden and about the Bidens, but they don't actually want to talk about the president's conduct. And what we saw in the beginning of the hearing was an effort to disrupt the hearing. They wanted to uh, throw out all these procedural motions and turn it into a circus, and, and Adam Schiff quickly uh, shut that down and stopped that. Um, and I think it's been a, a fairly professionally run hearing um, and where Republicans have gotten their say, um, but their strategy is to try to not talk about the facts. And it's really surprising at act at how little they've actually attacked uh, the witnesses thus far uh, on, on any sort of factual basis. And Max, earlier today, just as Jovanovic's hearing was starting, the White House released transcripts of an April call between President Trump and Ukraine's president, President Zelensky. What information, in, if any, did you glean from that transcript? So I, to me, that transcript says very little. It was just a perfunctory call. And I think the White House releasing it to say, well, there was no crime committed on this call, uh, it doesn't mean and doesn't really say anything because there was a crime clearly committed on the July 25th one. But what's also very interesting about that is when that April 21st call came, came uh, happened, the White House told the press that Trump had pushed Zelensky on, on corruption. 
but there's no mention of corruption on the call. So what's clear is the White House actually lied to the press and lied to the American public about what Trump discussed with Zelensky on that April call. So the thing they put out doesn't exonerate him at all, and in fact just shows that we have a White House that is willing to lie to the American people and really can't be trusted in anything they say, even as something as boring as a readout of a call with uh, a foreign leader. Well, thank you so much, Max, for joining us and giving us your intake in all this situation. Thank you so much. President Trump is taking his efforts to block the release of his financial records to the Supreme Court. The president has asked the court to block a subpoena by a Manhattan grand jury for copies of his financial records and tax returns. Trump's lawyers argue he is immune from criminal proceedings while in office. It is the first time Trump's attorneys have gone to the Supreme Court with their argument. The president has already lost the case in the lower courts. The justices are expected to meet behind closed doors in the coming weeks to discuss how to handle this petition. If the court takes the case this term, the justices could act on it by mid-January. The scene of the latest school shooting is still active a day after a 16-year-old student opened fire at Saugus High School in Santa Clarita, California, terrorizing yet again another community, leaving many injured and at least two dead. Here's a timeline of what happened. The shots rang out around 7.30 a.m. Pacific time. Active shooter at Saugus High School. All schools in vicinity are on lockdown. The suspect, a student, carrying out the attack on his 16th birthday. Detectives have reviewed the video at the scene, which clearly show the su subject in the quad withdraw a handgun from his backpack. Shot one round and fired at one student, injured that student, and then appeared to clear some sort of jam in the weapon and then fired an additional four rounds at four other students before uh, turning the gun on himself. And that ended it all in 16 seconds. Saugus High School in Santa Clarita, California, 35 miles from Los Angeles, becoming the scene of the latest mass shooting. Students evacuating following police orders in shock. It was terrifying. You know, I can't even describe it. I'm still processing it myself. So I was like, I don't know what to do. And then I remembered that I should just run. Everyone was scattering all over the place. It was everywhere. Everyone was screaming. People were falling down and tripping all over the place. Three off-duty police officers who were dropping off their kids were the first ones to respond to the emergency. Parents rushing to the scene to find their children. Okay, I'm going to walk to get you. Don't move, please. I just need to be, you just need to be in my arms right now, okay? You won't let go of your daughter. No, I'm scared. And embrace a phone call that some parents unfortunately did not get. Authorities still trying to figure out a motive. At this time, we have no reason to believe that the subject was acting on behalf of any other group or any ideology. The weapon that he used was recovered at the scene. It's a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, which had no more rounds in it, had no more bullets in it. Interviewing people close to the shooter. I've known him his whole life. I remember holding him when he was a baby. I kind of looked at him as a younger brother. Meanwhile, the community comes together to honor and remember those who lost their lives. Among them, a 16-year-old girl and 14-year-old boy described as a beloved cadet and friend. He's the kind of guy, like, you can have the worst day in your life. You can be just 
down on your luck. And he'd walk over and say, you know, how are you doing today? And you would immediately smile. Now let's go to Salvador Duran, who's in Santa Clarita with the very latest. Salvador, what can you tell us? Lorraine, and 24 hours after this uh, mass shooting that took place here at Sagas High School, the investigation is still ongoing, and they tell us that it's going to take a long time before they're able to finally process the entire scene on school campus and also over at the suspect's house. Now, as this is going on, we are at a park where the community has already began to mourn for the victims who uh, died in this tragic um, mass shooting and also for those survivors. And in addition to that, we have some um, new information regarding what happened during those uh, 16 seconds that uh, the gun, the gunman opened fire at the school. With me is Yvette Mojica. She's a student student on campus, an 11th grader. She tells us that um, she was just outside of the area where this happened, but was about to go inside a classroom. And uh, please, Yvette, thank you for joining us this morning. Describe to us what happened and what you saw. Um, I was in my classroom at the time and we were watching like some, like a documentary. And I was in the, I sit in the corner next to a door. And when I heard like the four like consecutive um, like um, gunshots, I, I freaked out and I go like, oh, those were gunshots. And then I looked through the window and I saw a crowd of kids running for their lives and I saw the looks on their faces. And I was like, oh my God, they're shooting. Mm -hmm. And that's when I like, I locked the door and I was telling everyone to come down to like go into the tables, the lights were turned off and everything. I was gonna ask you, tell us what happened inside the classroom because you guys have just recently had a drill precisely addressing the issue of a gunman, an active shooter on campus. Yes, um, I think that it's important to, to have those drills, to, but it's sad that our country has come to the point where we have to practice in case of a situation like that. But um, in, in that moment, it, you don't think about, oh my God, what did I do in the drill? It was just kind of like instinct. Yvette, you also told us that you saw a tweet that uh, President Donald Trump uh, sent out last night regarding sending this this community condolences. How do you feel about what he said? Um, I think that um, we don't need those condolences. What we need is change and we need action from the government and Congress to to enforce gun control and to prevent another situation like this to happen. Yvette, thank you for your time, and we are truly sorry what happened to you. You literally had to go through this horrible ordeal on campus. Now, as of now, um, as we mentioned earlier, the investigation is still ongoing. There are new details about the suspect. We know that, uh, we know his name, we know who he is. Uh, at this time, we are not releasing that information. However, uh, the, the uh, Sheriff Department will hold a press conference later this morning to update us on the on the um, latest findings on this investigation. For now, we're live in Santa Clarita. I'm Salvador Duran. Lorraine, back to you in the studio. Thank you, Salvador, for all of that information from Santa Clarita, California. And Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden on the campaign trail in Los Angeles reacting to Thursday's school shooting, asking for action instead of thoughts and prayers. Let's listen. This has become intolerable for a long time. And the fact that 
Our Republican friends led by this president is so desperately afraid of the NRA, afraid of the gun manufacturers, and yields in a way that is quite frankly sickening. I'm so tired of people talking about your prayers. Damn it, we have to protect these kids. While on one side of the country, several high school students were dealing with another school shooting in Washington, D.C., senators were debating gun control legislation. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut was speaking about a push for universal background checks when he received word of the Santa Clarita school shooting. Let's listen. As I speak on the floor right now. There is a school shooting in Santa Clara, California. How can we turn the other way? How can we refuse to see that shooting in real time, demanding our attention, requiring our action? We are complicit if we fail to act. Both Connecticut Senators Blumenthal and Chris Murphy had been advocating on the floor for Republicans to take up gun control legislation for a vote, but Murphy's motion was blocked by a Republican, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi. Let's go to Robin Lloyd. She's with the anti-violence group Giffords. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Thanks, Lorraine. Where do we stand on gun control legislation right now? Well, here in Washington, we have a tale of two chambers in Congress, quite frankly. We have uh, U.S. House of Representatives that has taken action. It's one of the first things that they did in the new year when they came into this Congress. They passed a strong universal background checks bill. And then, unfortunately, we have a United States Senate where Senate Majority Leader McConnell and President Trump have refused to take action um, on any kind of even modest piece of gun safety legislation to say nothing of the fact that they have not yet brought up the universal background checks bill for a vote in the Senate. Robin, just this Tuesday, Attorney General uh, William Barr announced an initiative to reduce gun violence. What are your thoughts on that program? Well, it's commendable that the administration is looking to enforce the laws on the books. It really misses the fact that American gun laws are riddled with loopholes and have um, a lot of weaknesses in them that allow people to be able to get firearms far too easily in this country, something that we saw play out just yesterday in Santa Clarita, unfortunately. So um, it, it's really lip service, I think, from the administration to do something meaningful to address gun violence. Uh, we've heard time and time again from the president that he's going to take action, and we have seen no action from, from him or his administration. California is known for having some of the strictest gun regulations in the country, yet that state has seen several mass shootings in the recent years, including the Gilroy shooting this year, which ended up with three people dead, and San Bernardino in 2015, in which 14 people died, uh, just to name a few. What do you owe that to? 
you know, our nation is a patchwork of gun laws. So unless we have a strong federal solution, there's only so much that any individual state can do. California has certainly paved the way on what strong gun safety regulations could look like in a state, but they're uh, limited by their neighbors who have less strong regulation. And we really do need a strong federal solution. It's not just mass shootings that we're talking about here. Unfortunately, of course, as you noted, California has seen a number of those, but it really is day-to-day violence that occurs in communities across this country and that can be better addressed by having stronger gun safety laws in place. And as we mentioned before, you're with the anti-gun violence group Giffords. What actions are you calling for lawmakers to adopt? First and foremost, we're saying that Congress has to pass and President Trump has to sign a universal background checks bill into law. We um, believe it is a fundamental step forward. It is not the only thing that we can do. We should um, allocate federal funding for gun violence research. We should um, better protect victims of domestic violence and make sure that their domestic abusers don't have easy access to firearms. We should make it harder for uh, people who are showing uh, dangerous behaviors to themselves or others, it would make it harder for them to have easy access to firearms. And of course, we need to do more to protect children and make sure that children, whether they're teens or young children, do not have easy access to firearms in their home. Thank you, Robin, for joining us. We appreciate your time. And staying on the topic of gun violence, a South Carolina judge has sentenced a 17-year-old boy to life behind bars for killing two people in a school shooting three years ago. In 2016, the teen killed his father in their home. He then drove to an elementary school, opening fire on children on a playground. The teen pleaded guilty to two murder charges and three attempted murder charges back in December of 2018. The judge also sentenced the teen to 30 years in prison for wounding two other students and a teacher. Now to the border between the U.S. and Mexico, an interactive public art project is stimulating cross-border conversations about connectivity and community. Pedro Rojas shines a light on this truly illuminating project from El Paso, Texas. A display of intense lights and voices has taken over the nights at the border between El Paso, Texas and Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. It is called Border Tuner. Organizers says the idea is to overcome the separation established by the border wall for a few hours. We're making sure that we're uh, portraying the diversity of the, of the region, so we're inviting historians, poets, uh, indigenous communities, etc., to come and uh, activate the piece for the first uh, 30 or 45 minutes. After that, the piece is open to the public. They have installed three interactive stations located on both sides of the border. Each one controls powerful robotic lights, and when they cross each other, microphones and loudspeakers turn on to allow participants to communicate. Now we are looking for each other in the sky. Then when we hear voices, we can recognize them generically as voices of children, seniors, women or men, some of whom we know personally, says Willibaldo Delgadillo, a resident of Juarez. It is good because it is a connection between voices. The lie is the voice that is on the other side says Juarez resident Ashley Cervantes. The organizers of this event are hoping that this activity is going to fortify the relationship in this border region. We want to highlight that there is no animosity between us, totally the opposite. We are communities that need from each other in order to survive, Evelyn Murillo, an organizer in Juarez, says. The nightly activity to overcome separation at the border is going to continue until November 24th and is free to the public. In El Paso, Texas, Pedro Rojas, U News.
In Venezuela, members of the National Guard used tear gas to end the student protest in Caracas. Students survived with roses as a sign of peace and an invitation for the uniformed men to demand the resignation of Nicolás Maduro. Before the demonstration, students met with the president of the National Assembly and opposition leader Juan Guaidó. Guaidó has called on Venezuelans to protest tomorrow, including calling for support of former Bolivian president Evo Morales. Meanwhile, in Bolivia, indigenous groups are protesting in La Paz against interim president Janine Añez. Añez assumed the presidency last Tuesday after Morales resigned and requested asylum in Mexico. Demonstrators say that Añez's government is a coup against Morales. The new president has promised to call elections and has stated that there was no coup. And it's now been four consecutive weeks of protests in the Chilean capital of Santiago. At least 20 people have died and 2,000 have been wounded in the civil unrest. Santiago has seen fires, clashes between police and protesters, as well as looting. Demonstrators are demanding higher economic equality and a solution to the high cost of living they face. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Nike making a major announcement, the sportswear giant kicking Amazon to the curb, saying it will no longer sell its shoes and sports-related products on the tech company's site. Instead, Nike is focusing on what it's calling more direct personal relationships with its consumers, as well as developing other partnerships. In a statement, Nike said it will work, quotes, with other retailers and platforms to seamlessly serve our consumers globally. In travel news, a Qantas Airlines flight broke a world record as it touched down this morning in Sydney, Australia. The 50 passengers on board got to see not one, but two sunrises as they flew directly from London all the way across the, the globe. The 19-hour and 19-minute research flight is now officially becoming the longest commercial airline passenger flight in both distance and duration. And the world's largest Starbucks has opened its doors in Chicago. The building is five stories and sits along the city's famous Magnificent Mile. Starbucks is calling the shop slash tourist attraction a roastery where customers can check out different stages of the brewing process and explore the world of coffee. The Chicago Roastery employs 200 people and also features specialty foods and cocktails. It is also the only Starbucks location outside of Milan to sell liquid nitrogen gelato. They had me at hello, designed to be eaten with coffee, of course. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.